Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. Many donors weren't that interested in depression reduction. They were more interested in, in what depression reduction results in. For example, we learned that by reducing depression, women go back to work. That improves their physical health. It helps their children. So we, we now talk more about the fact that by reducing depression, it helps women. It helps their children. But listen to your customer, listen to your funder, and be willing to kind of change that approach. By changing our approach and talking about what our impact is, by no means does that change what we're doing on the ground with our, with our depressed patients. It simply changes how we present it. I'm very pleased today to introduce Sean Mabry. Sean is the CEO of Strong Minds, an organization that provides access to mental health services for impoverished Africans by helping people suffering from major depression return to becoming productive members of their communities. Previously, Sean was the CEO for FXB International and before that, Chief Operating Officer for Vision Spring, a social enterprise which provides affordable eyeglasses to low-income populations. Welcome, Sean, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us uh, for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. It's a great privilege. I guess a good place to start would be to get a little bit of a, some background on what Strong Minds is about and maybe how you came to get be involved. Absolutely. No, Strong Minds exists really in the simplest sense to improve the mental health of women in Africa. We are focused on the number one mental illness in Africa and the number one disabler of African women, which is depression. Um, it's a huge mental illness for African women and we exist. We are really the only organization in Africa that is singularly focused on this mental illness. And for me, I really spent about the last 10 years working and living in Africa, but mostly focused on uh, physical health issues like HIV, AIDS, and malaria. Um, but for the most of that time, I really saw and was frustrated with the, the lack of access for Africans who suffered from mental illness. And it was really seeing um, that lack of access and my own frustration as a professional not being able to help those Africans that ultimately led me to create Strong Minds so that I could really help Africans who suffer from mental um, illness uh, to provide that access. There really are very few uh, mental health professionals uh, available in Africa, very few psychiatrists, very few psychiatric nurses. If you look at Uganda, for example, a country where there are 40 million people, there are only 30 psychiatrists available in the entire country. If you look, um, say, in, uh, in the United States, for example, there are 30 psychiatrists in just a couple city blocks of Manhattan, just as a point of reference. So any kind of mental health intervention that Strong Minds or any other uh, mental health organization is doing in Africa, it's, it's almost impossible to think that you can really use a psychiatrist or any kind of mental health professional because they're simply not available. So what we're doing to treat depression is really using people from the community themselves. So we use what's called group talk therapy. Officially speaking, it's group interpersonal psychotherapy. That's quite a mouthful, but in the simplest sense, it's group talk therapy. So what we do is we bring together groups of depressed women, and we have a group leader who is someone who is employed by Strong Mind, and we train that group leader who is someone from the community. So it's not a nurse or a doctor. It's someone from the community that we train for several weeks in group talk therapy. And then that person uh, receives on-the-job training as well, but it's someone who leads the group talk therapy. 
women who are depressed go through this group talk therapy for 12 weeks. They meet for an hour a week in a group of women who typically have 10 to 12 depressed women in the entire group. And we're finding amazing results. People, depressed women who go through these groups, at the end of the 12 weeks, we found in treating over a 1,000 women now in this methodology, more than 90% of those women are actually what we call depression-free at the end of the therapy. They're no longer depressed. Wow, that's an amazing result. Presumably, it's, it's a cost-effective way of dealing with it? Well, it is. When you think about, um, if you were to compare it, say, uh, you know, if you think about the cost of therapy in the United States, for example, you know, a typical ther- uh, therapy session, say, in New York City, which can run anywhere between two, three, or four hundred dollars per hour uh, for an individual, you know, our cost per person right now is anywhere between fifty to seventy-five dollars uh, per person. Uh, but we're very much in the early startup phase. Um, you know, as when we look down the road and as we're able to treat more patients and are able to reduce our costs, you know, when we look down the road and forecast treating a million patients, you know, we've only treated 1,000 today, but when we do our long-term forecast and are able to treat a million patients in the next few years, we're able to forecast the cost of $30 per patient, uh, which is incredibly uh, economical when you look at, say, the cost of other medical interventions for HIV, AIDS, or malaria. So we think it's highly efficient. When you talk to people in, say, the mental health department at the WHO, um, they're incredibly um, excited by our own intervention. And, in fact, the WHO is coming out to recommend the use of uh, the same type of group talk therapy, group interpersonal psychotherapy. They're really recommending um, really all African uh, ministries of health to use the same type of therapy to treat depression in all African countries. So it's not just a methodology only being used by strong minds. It's something that is endorsed by the World Health Organization as well. Wow, that's amazing. It's actually a, a development in terms of the approach to dealing with the problems, and I guess one that's suitable to the environment uh, in several different ways. It is. I mean, one of the great things about group interpersonal psychotherapy is that it's incredibly simple. It really, as, it, as the key term there, interpersonal, it's really focused on how people interact with one another. So it's quite simple to be able to treat our, our group leaders in the methodology and the theory of it. It's a two-week classroom training and then roughly a year of on-the-job training um, as our group leaders are conducting natural therapy groups. If you're talking about, you know, there's a variety of different kind of um, uh, therapies that can be used for depression, like um, cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy, um, CBT, for example, which is much more complex and is certainly not able to be uh, taught to someone in two weeks of training. Group interpersonal psychotherapy is a much simpler approach uh, that has been found, uh, that was actually initially found to be effective in Africa in what was called a randomized control trial in 2002. Um, it's very uh, effective in the African setting where people come together in groups, and as I mentioned, it's very simple to train people in. So in that sense, uh, we're, we're finding it highly effective. Right, that's very interesting. And how long has it taken you to get to this stage? Because I know from your work that you think a lot about impact and you think a lot about scale. So can you tell me how you've thought about breaking the project into phases, I suppose, to get to you know your ultimate destination? 
Sure. Well, we really started Charm Life in 2013, so we're really into our third year now. I mean, the first year was certainly the most difficult. It was really about trying to find the initial funding. Uh, we were very lucky in that some of the, the original researchers who first um, implemented group personal psychotherapy in 2002 in Africa joined our team as our advisors and mentors. Um, but really, the, the first year was really about trying to find um, initial uh, funders who would really help us to kind of do our first uh, pilot uh, of uh, group interpersonal psychotherapy so that we could really go out and show um, really the world that we could implement this at a greater scale. And we were lucky to, to find some initial foundations who believed in us and, and in, in, in essence took a gamble on us. So in 2014, we launched our pilot in which we really treated two, uh, 500 women. And we used roughly the same approach from the original randomized control trial of 2002, uh, used the same methodology, but treated many more women. The randomized control trial treated just over 100 women. But in our pilot of 2014, we treated over 500 women using many less group leaders. So in essence, we were able to show that we could treat a vast number of depressed women using very few group leaders which was important for us to show that we had a model that we could scale, that we could cost-efficiently treat a lot of people using very few group leaders so that we could do so, so that we could treat depression cost-effectively. And we were um, successful in doing that. And now in 2015, as we're able to show both our current funders and prospective funders that we have results, we're trying to... Um, really scale this up even more, and we're on track to treat well over a 1,000 women this year. Wow, that's great. That's great. And do you see yourself as a social entrepreneur, or how do you see yourself? It's a term that's used quite loosely or or, or more uh, tightly. <laughs> it can be used quite loosely, can it? No, I definitely consider myself as a social entrepreneur. At least my own personal definition of that is, is someone who really is looking um, – to change in the world, quite simply. My personal definition is about finding a, a problem in society on a very large scale and who has the vision, who can change, uh, make a change to that. You know, our vision, uh, my personal vision, which is really part of Strong Minds, is really ending what I call the depression epi epidemic in Africa, in which there are, um, in, in our own belief, 60 million women who suffer from depression throughout the continent. And no one is doing anything about it. And the amazing thing is that you're not just talking about these 60 million women who suffer from depression, but as we all know, women are the backbone of African families. And we know for a fact from research that when an African mother suffers from depression, her entire family suffers. Um, her children have uh, poorer health. They attend school less regularly. Her income suffers. So... When we are able to help a woman out of depression, we really save her entire family. So we are literally helping not just these 60 million women in the long term, but literally helping hundreds of millions of her family members. So I see myself and Strong Minds, I see myself as a social entrepreneur and Strong Minds as a social enterprise because of this incredibly large vision we have of ultimately being able to help hundreds of millions of Africans out of this depression epidemic right right and that, i guess that brings up the other question i suppose about how you'll be funded and how you see yourself being funded down the road 
That's a great question. I mean, funding for us, particularly as an organization in the mental health space, is extraordinarily difficult. Um, when you look at total funding for international development, uh, there was a recent report that came out earlier this month in June that showed mental health funding in international development is less than 1% of the entire pie. In fact, it's 0.7%. So while total funding for the international space is quite difficult, the mental health funding is probably the most difficult. So for us, we certainly um, cannot envision strong minds being able to uh, fund and operate these same groups for the next 10 and 20 years. That's just impossible given the, the, the dart of funding. And we know that and we've accepted that. So how we see ourselves being able to really address the depression epidemic is by creating not just our strong minds operated groups, but it's really about developing um, a, a viral group, kind of a self-replicating approach to these groups that we've already begun to pilot this year. It's really about getting the women that we help to become depression-free who graduate from our groups. It's about teaching them a very simple way that they can create their own groups and go on to help um, their neighbors and sisters who also suffer from depression and getting those groups to then splinter off and, and getting women from those groups to create their own groups in kind of a self-replicating viral fashion. And we already have a number of volunteers from our pilot in 2014 already beginning to do those groups. So ultimately, we really see this as kind of a viral expansion approach um, that we're piloting. And that's really what we see and are hopeful that um, really can be the solution to this epidemic. Do women pay? No, women do not pay to join our groups. This is entirely uh, free for the women to join our groups, and we are not charging any fee whatsoever. Right. Did you ever consider that? We did consider it. It's funny that you asked that. Uh, we did consider that early on, uh, um, and that was, um, and in fact, quite honestly, that's still in the back of our of our minds uh, to charge. Um, but um, it, it's you know we're not planning to do that anytime soon, uh, particularly when we think of the women that we're treating right now. Uh, for example, we're working in uh, the very difficult slum areas of uh, Kampala in, in the city area. These women are incredibly poor. Uh, these are some of the worst slum areas that I've ever seen, and, and I've lived and worked in Africa and Asia for many years. Um, charging them for this service um, is really behind, uh, beyond comprehension when you think of what depression does to these women in terms of, you know, one of the, the main symptoms of depression is um, the inability to complete tasks, and, and it really reduces your productivity. Uh, thereby, these women with depression have... Um, severely reduced productivity and reduced income. Um, so charging them to attend uh, our groups uh, uh, would really be um, just taking advantage of one of their symptoms. It would really be walking them out of uh, the service. Um, um, so that's really something that I just, uh, while we're thinking about it, I just don't see us being able to do it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned the question of sustainability, and I suppose that's for some social entrepreneurs. That's a motivation for them to think about this question. And I suppose the different ways people approach it, some will have offer services maybe to a wealthier segment, as it were, and, and then use that to fund, you know, some of the areas where you clearly can't, could never and, and would never want to charge and things like that. But um, it's, it's an interesting question, I guess, in terms of just, you know, sustainability and a model that can grow and somehow self-finance itself. 
Well, it's funny that you say that, and the one reason that we're thinking about it isn't so much for charging the women when they are, are, are initially attending our groups when they're really at their lowest state and in their, their deepest state of depression, but we have found in our direct research, we have this evidence in our hand, is that after we've helped um, our women to become depression-free, not only uh, do we help them to become depression-free, but our research has also found that when they are no longer depressed, these women go back to work, their incomes increase, their productivity increases, their children go back to school. We really do help their whole family, and we have this direct evidence. This isn't just tangential evidence from other researchers. So we know for a fact when we reduce their depression that women go back to work. So one of our, our thinking, uh, our thoughts, is that you know perhaps three months down the road after we've helped this, these women and they've gone back to work and their incomes have increased, is there a way to go back to those women and ask them then, three months later, okay, now that you are back to work and you are stronger, is there a way that you can pay for that service now after the fact so that, in essence, you could be paying for us to treat another woman who's depressed, um, who isn't as lucky as you right now? Um, so, in essence, kind of a pay-it-forward strategy or something like that, and that's what we're thinking about. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of on our, our idea list at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that sounds very interesting. I suppose the other side of it is that if there was potential, I suppose that there was some even small amount of money coming in, that that might make it more attractive for people to train, I suppose, and to earn a little bit of money themselves and train as you know, these kind of therapists and for it to grow. But but very interesting uh, area and, and clearly, yeah. as you say, one which is evolving as you, as you grow and, and look at, you know, how things evolve. Exactly. You know, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. What would you say are a couple of the, the, the biggest learnings? I mean, you've been involved, I guess, in, in international development or, you know, that, that general area for, for, for some time, shall we say. <laughs> what, what are one or two of the key things that you've learned, I suppose, with strong minds and building up this? Oh, tremendous amount of learnings. I think uh, probably one of the, the, the key learnings that, um, that really surprised me, at least in the, the startup phase, is really just the, the lack of available funding in the social enterprise phase um, or the social enterprise space, rather, uh, for startup uh, enterprises. There are so few um, donors or opportunities to fund new ideas. I mean, there are a few competitions that I think people in the social enterprise space are aware of. Uh, the competitions themselves are incredibly difficult uh, for new ideas. There's always It always feels like there's a, a thousand uh, ideas or organizations competing for very limited funding. Um, it was incredibly difficult in our first year of 2013 where we thought we had a, a great idea and a great approach and a, a strong team with a lot of experience. I mean, we weren't a bunch of uh, you know, 20-somethings uh, with an idea coming out of undergrad. We were a seasoned team um, with a proven idea with an RCT, uh, with RCT backing. And uh, still, it took us nearly a year to find the, the initial funding, and I was putting in my own personal kind of uh, savings to, to make it a go. Uh, there's just so little uh, funding available for those new ideas, and I worry that at least in the social enterprise space, you know, how many great ideas uh, are just not being invested um, um, in um, by potential donors? How many just kind of uh, just kind of uh, wither on the vine? So when I look at that whole social enterprise space, um, you know, if I was a billionaire coming into this space and trying to figure out how can I kind of help in this space. 
I would really encourage uh, foundations to think about, you know, how can we help these new ideas and not by creating these competitions and contests, which I think uh, can be quite wasteful of energy, but how do you go out there and help some of these new ideas to really get off the launch pad? Um, that was really my biggest learning, um, how incredibly difficult it is with a great new idea to really to move forward. Wow, yeah, you're not the first person to say that, Sean, and it's a recurring theme, yeah. What do you see as some of the bottlenecks or some of the things that if they were changed would could change the landscape a bit there? It's interesting. I mean, you you have a lot of, uh, I mean, you have some of the, you have some early funding mechanisms. Uh, however, I think a lot of those are looking quite honestly, you know, I'm a, a an older, more seasoned professional. I think a lot of the, the current funding mechanisms for the early startups are really looking for uh, younger professionals coming out of college. They want kind of the, the 25-year-old with a, with a great new idea um, and with great technology and things like that. And many times they're looking for the, the exciting idea. Um, but, you know, quite quite honestly, it's not always about the great idea. Many times it's really about the execution. I think there's a million great ideas out there. Um, but you really need a uh, strong execution. And I think Strong Minds is one example where, uh, you know, quite honestly, right, uh, uh, this talk therapy really isn't our idea. I mean, the idea was proven in 2002. We simply took it and are, are scaling it and kind of expanding it. I think our, our competence is really about the execution and, and implementing it well. And that comes from having a seasoned team of of uh, professionals who have been in this space for 10 and 20 years and know how to implement well. Um, so I think one of the bottlenecks is that even in the, the limited number of funding mechanisms for new ideas in the social enterprise space, they are overly um, uh, fixated on give us a great idea and they and they, they're focused on that, but they're not thinking about what is your ability as an individual or as a team to actually implement this? You know, what is your leadership capability? What is your management capability? Can you actually stick with this idea and implement it well? Um, because when I look at a lot of these competitions in the enterprise space for the new ideas, I, I honestly can't tell you that I remember any of them a few years later. They seem to be funded and many of them seem to evaporate. So I'm not sure that even the few mechanisms that exist in the social enterprise space to fund new ideas are really creating anything. Uh, that's just my own personal opinion. Maybe they do have some success stories, but um, I'm, I'm not terribly aware of any. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. What about other kinds of support along the way? I mean, have you had any need within the local environment you're working or, or more generally from, from other kinds of organizations and how have they met your needs? Well, we've been incredibly lucky. You know, we've been, um, well, the, you know, the, the, the more, uh, official kind of mechanisms in the enterprise space for, for new funding, uh, didn't really work for our advantage. We were quite lucky in that I think given the experience of some of the members on our team, um, you know, we were lucky in leveraging a lot of this personal relationships with some previous foundations who believed um, both in our approach and in our own um, professional and personal capability to actually implement well. And on that, we had uh, a handful of organizations who really took the gamble on us late in 2013 and uh, were willing to fund a small pilot for us. And we kept our pilot in 2014 intentionally small uh, so that we could get it funded. 
And we took a lot of, um, uh, we made a lot of sacrifice. You know, our team in 2014 uh, took almost no salary and uh, really kind of self-financed ourselves with personal savings. And um, and we also, um, you know, formed a lot of partnerships. You know, in Uganda, we were working with, um, we had a key partnership with a, a, a Swiss NGO that we were sitting in their office and using some of their personnel uh, in terms of cost sharing. So again, that kept our pilot cost low. So we're very smart about, you know, keeping our, our cost low and being cost efficient so that we could fund our pilot. And we really had a long-term vision about, you know, let's get this pilot done, show the results. And the whole strategy was that with the results, the results would actually buy us um, more supporters in the future, which is certainly the case because as we came in, into 2015 and had results in hand, um, we have been able to find additional supporters and our fundraising, I don't want to say it's getting easier, but we are raising more funds now and that was kind of along the whole strategy. Um, but we could not have done that if it wasn't for the initial foundation to tip a gamble for us, if it wasn't for a, a key NGO in Uganda that would allow us to partner with them and to share costs with them. And um, and there's a whole host of other potential partners. You know, a great external researcher who helped us with our impact evaluation in 2014, who um, you know really did a lot of uh, above and beyond work for us and really kept our, their fees low for us. Um, you know, by all means, we could never have done this by ourselves. Yeah, it sounds like a great team of support you have. And it echoes something that Tom Saki was saying from TerraCycle, that asking people for help in different ways, you know, when you're doing good can be a very powerful support mechanism. People will do things, give you reduced fees or try and find space for you and things like that. And it's a, I guess it's, yeah. a, good, it's a good lesson and for probably, you. Yeah, and probably one of the, the, the key supporters that I, I neglected and would really want to mention is you know, the original uh, researchers from the RCT in 2002 uh, from Columbia University to this day uh, continue to give us tons of their time uh, without any charge. And, and they've really become both our technical advisors. Uh, they meet with us all the time. They, they chat with our team in Uganda. They guide us on all sorts of technical issues. And, you know, myself, I'm not, I, I have a, a business program management background. I'm not a mental health expert by any stretch. And they've really become my, my mental health mentor as well. And they do this all on their own time simply because they believe, um, uh, they're so excited by strong minds, by the, um, by the prospects of us being able to scale the, um, methodology that they, that these researchers were part of in 2002. Um, so again, if it wasn't for, um, these researchers and professionals from Columbia University who have joined our team, uh, we would never have been able to do this. But it's just another example of really being able to forge a great team of people who believe in the mission and who uh, you know are not holding out their hands for a fee. Um, but it's about you know forging a team of people who believe in the mission, who see the vision and uh, and believe in it. And because of that, uh, you know we've accomplished a tremendous amount. You know what we did in our pilot in 2014, we did that on a budget of uh, you know the budget for that was roughly about 150000 USD. And, you know, that's roughly about the same salary that you would see uh, for an executive director of a mid-sized social enterprise in the U.S. I mean, it's tremendous that we did that for the salary of a single executive director. Um, and I think it's a great example of what you can do on, on a small budget. It may also mean that uh, executive director salaries are inflated, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
but you can be the judge of that. <laughs> yes, forging this team, as you say, I mean, I suppose you'd call that a kind of bootstrapping approach. And what have you learned about that? Or what would your advice be to somebody who, you know, because this approach of getting a pilot seems to be a, a powerful one that other social entrepreneurs have talked about to get some really good evidence to support fundraising efforts. Yeah, I mean, well, it's uh, it's it's definitely the right way to do it because, you know, the pilot is really, uh, it's it's the proof, right? It's being able to go back to show donors and stakeholders and including ministries of health, if you're a health intervention, um, that what you're saying, what you're promising, that your idea actually works. Um, but it's incredibly difficult because when you have a team like, like we're talking about, Columbia University, external researchers, a, a partner in jail that you're physically sitting with and using some of their staff, uh, you have a whole host of stakeholders like that. It's a lot of people that you're managing and managing expectations and having to work with. I mean, it's, you know, it's always easier to do something by yourself. Uh, when you have a whole host of people around you, you have to manage expectations. There's always, uh, you know, um, missed expectations or dealing with interpersonal relations and there's a lot more meetings, there's a lot more talking. Um, ultimately, it may be more difficult. Um, but when you're doing a pilot on a limited budget like that, that's just uh, kind of the, the price you pay. Um, but you just spend a lot more time managing it, uh, but you also learn a lot more, more, you know, particularly in strong minds where we didn't have that mental health expertise. Uh, you know, what we've learned uh, from, for example, our, our colleagues from Columbia is, is uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's beyond value. Uh, you know, the mental health expertise that we developed as a team and the relationship that we formed with our colleagues from Columbia uh, is something that we'll always have. And they've helped us now, for example, these same colleagues serve as references for us for new funders. So the relationship is incredibly deep. Our, the NGO that we work with in Uganda now, after sharing office space with them, now we're doing joint proposals with them to do program work. Um, so those initial relationships are really turning into longer-term relationships that are paying dividends. Um, so again, kind of the, uh, I guess maybe a, a one phrase or a catch-all would be, you know, that short-term pain really uh, returns long-term gain. And, uh, you know, it'd be much easier to kind of just try to do yourself or not manage those relationships. Um, but if you have an eye on the long-term approach, uh, which many times can be difficult, um, but it is the right way to, I think, approach it. That's fascinating because you see the power of these partnerships, as you say, that that build a platform for growth later. And, you know, as you say, I mean, they often say this about VC backed companies or things that, you know, sometimes there's more money around. There can be less creativity or, you know, you're forced when you reduce budgets to think outside the box and build partnerships and things. Interesting point about you know, actually maintaining these relationships. And, you know, I mean, the idea of actually setting up, a, getting somebody to support you is one thing, but actually to keep people on board during the different stages and keep communicating and, as you say, managing expectations. Have you got just maybe one or two insights about, you know, what you've learned from that? Um, maintaining Well, for me, I'm, I'm a huge fan of just over-communicating, um, you know, sharing information and giving credit as well. Um, and um, I think those are really the, 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 the really key points, you know, in, in all of the relationships. It's letting everyone know what you're doing, over-communicating, letting them know if you're changing expectations, if there's been any changes to timelines, um, but it's not taking anything for granted. And it's also just making sure that, uh, you know, we're saying thank you because so often many of these um, partners, um, we're not uh, we're not having to, to pay them many times. It's just uh, them offering a service um, out of gratitude. 
So it's really just coming back to just being uh, kind and polite and saying thank you and over communicating and just being professional to them uh, and um, and just treating them um, with uh, respect. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Very interesting. What's your vision now over the next three years or five years? How do you look forward? What are you looking at achieving? Yeah, I know for the next few years, um, it's really about continuing to, we have um, either further results now uh, from our pilot that we look forward to publishing actually this month that will show that by reducing depression among the women we treat, we have even uh, extensive um, positive impact on the women that we treat and their families even further than we have found last year. And with those results, we look forward to being able to publicize that um, among our networks and potential funders. And with that, we hope that we can find additional support so that we can treat more women. You know, this year, as I mentioned, we'll be treating over a thousand women. We really look to ramp that up over the next uh, few years, um, over the next three years, to treating 4,000 women, 8,000, and then 12,000 over the next three years. So it's really about ramping this up, scaling it forward, expanding outside of Kampala. Uh, and continuing to learn more. It's it's somewhat easier to be doing this therapy in Kampala in an urban area where things are quite uh, concentrated and easier to deal with women who are close by. We look forward to expanding into uh, more rural areas of Uganda where things are much more, you know, it would be a very different approach where women are more scattered and spread out and not as concentrated. It would be almost a, a entirely different program for us, so that'll be a new learning. And at the same time, over those same three years, it'll be um, further learning for us as we learn more about our viral program, our self-replicating program, about getting women to graduate from our therapy groups and seeing how we can continue to develop the right methodology so that those women can learn the, the basics of talk therapy and go out and create their own groups. What is the right mechanism for them to do that? And what is the level of involvement and strong minds in that? Because as I mentioned before, that is really our long-term vision. And that is something that is a huge priority for us and something that many of our current and prospective um, supporters and donors are very interested in. And that's something that we really want to focus on as quickly as possible. So really, in short, it's about expanding um, you know, the number of patients into the several thousands as quickly as we can and continuing to learn um, as quickly as possible. That's a great vision. I wish you the, you. Uh, the very best of luck and success with that over the coming years. Yes. Could I get in one extra question that I got to slip back in earlier? Sorry, because I've run out, I've, I've extended your time, but I just wonder whether you've got one or two things about the lessons from fundraising. <laughs> it's always interesting to hear firsthand somebody's experience. Sure. Um, well, in general, um, I think some of the lessons I've learned is, um, one, uh, particularly in the startup phase, um, you know, is to avoid, um, I think, things like um, fundraising competitions and all those contests. I think there are, you know, hundreds and thousands of, of startups that are competing for those, and it's, it's nearly impossible uh, for an organization to win those. I think there's there's tons of interesting ideas out there, and for any organization to really set yourself apart against hundreds and thousands of others is nearly impossible. Um, so I don't think it's worth anyone's time to, to even compete in those contests that are so alluring. So I would suggest not to do that. Um, and even when you see all these open calls for RFPs from certain foundations that look a little more um, uh, structured or, uh, or more tailored, 
I think, again, it's really difficult unless you already have a relationship with those individual uh, found uh, foundations just to be aware that that RFP is public and there's going to probably be at least 50 or 100 organizations applying as well. And unless you've somehow been able to have a phone call or some discussion with uh, the program manager or the representative at that foundation, unless you've been able to differentiate yourself, if you're just submitting a blind proposal, almost certainly you're not going to be able to win that. Um, so my point uh, that I'm getting to is that you're really going to spend your time early on in fundraising is identifying foundations, um, if that's going to be your strategy. You're really going to build relationships with these foundations uh, and to focus on those few and meet with these foundations and kind of present yourself. Um, I know early on in Strong Mindset, we were doing lots of contests, lots of open call proposals and submitting all these things. I, and I can't imagine how many hours and days of efforts we spent uh, really wasting our time and all those things. And we really shifted in the last year to working with just a few handful of foundations that are, are continuing to fund us and developing relationships with those foundations. And they're funding us now at greater amounts. And in turn, those foundations really become your, your best supporters because the great foundations, in turn, will literally pick up the phone and call their their fellow foundations and recommend you to someone else. And there's nothing more powerful, at least we've learned, than a foundation recommending your organization to a fellow foundation. Um, and and, there, and that is just a, a, a great strategy. Um, so that's one, uh, well, maybe in a nutshell, kind of a, a fundraising strategy or lesson that we've learned is, you know, really focus on a handful of foundations um, and, and that works well. I think another lesson we've learned is, you know, when you're talking about these big funding organizations, these bilateral like USAID or DFID, again, I think as a small, if you're a small startup like Strong Minds, I think it's very hard to differentiate yourself um, from to those large organizations, like you say, their DFID, and particularly, um, I think their application procedures are quite onerous for small organizations. We spend a lot of time uh, applying to USAID on their uh, innovative ventures program that is really geared up for new ideas and looks to be quite set up for an organization like Strong Minds. And we were kind of uh, lured into their process like a bee to honey, and we're... Um, <laughs> Uh, asked to do a 50-page proposal, which for a two-man operation uh, took us roughly uh, two months to do and ended up uh, being rejected with a one-line uh, rejection letter, and we just spent so much time on it. It was a huge waste of effort, and I would really just recommend as a small outfit. I just don't think you can be expected to uh, spend the time. I, I just don't think it's a good uh, level of effort or a good expected ROI to try to even work with some of those big organizations when you're still a small organization. Um, those are some of my learnings. And maybe the last one would be, and maybe this is specific to Strongline, think about how you're, you're presenting your, your, your impact or, or your product or service. For Strong Minds, at least, we spent the first year talking about our depression intervention and selling, if you will, or marketing or presenting that we reduce depression among women, and that's what we do. But we really learned after the first year that many donors weren't that interested in depression reduction. They were more interested in what reducing and in, in what depression reduction results in. For example, we learned that by reducing depression, women go back to work. That improves their physical health. It helps their children. So we, we now talk more about the fact that by reducing depression, it helps women, it helps their children. 
So we're talking less about depression reduction um, and more about the, the, the final outcomes of helping mothers and children. So in many ways, depression reduction is more of a, an intermediate outcome or a means to an end. And it took us almost a year to understand that by talking to donors. And that's just, I think, a natural evolution. Uh, I think if you're selling any product or service, not even in, in Africa or if you're in the UK or in the US, just getting to kind of know your customer if you think of a funder as a customer. And that's a natural evolution. So I think my, my feedback to any potential social enterprises, you know, keep your ears open and be willing to change kind of your, your marketing strategy or your funding approach, call it what you may, but listen to your customer, listen to your funder and be willing to kind of change that approach by changing our approach and talking about um, what our impact is, by no means does that change what we're doing on the ground with our with our depressed patients. It simply changes how we present it. Um, but I think, in, in summary, those would be some of my um, my learnings on, on fundraising. Um, That's fascinating, Sean, and very very useful, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Sean, for for sharing your insights and experience. And I wish you the best of success with Strong Minds. And thank you again. Well, great. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.